Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here and uh, starting this new series with us where we are going to marvel at God. And we're going to marvel at God in all sorts of different ways. And we're going to begin uh, today by talking about God in creation. Now, maybe uh, you've seen the stats on this, but they're quite disturbing, especially for people in my field, and that is that people in unprecedented numbers are losing their religion. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, much later today if you wanted to hang around until extended. Uh, but there's all, all sorts of reasons as to why people who at one point in their life claim a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ as Christians and then stop doing so. But um, in a study that I'm going to cite a little later this morning, uh, it looks like there's one specific reason. And they talk about the findings of science. Specifically, uh, this idea that life looks designed, but really it isn't. The contention of modern science is driving people away from the faith, a specific contention, that the, the designs you see in nature are merely biological adaptations that are driven by mutations and then saved and collected over eons by natural selection. That particular contention of science has been deeply troubling for lots of people of faith and that eventually turned from it. Now, in contrast to this, here's the story of the Bible. The Bible maintains that the natural world looks designed because it is designed. And so we read these words from Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. And the song that was sung for us earlier is basically saying the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet the message has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. That the creation is speaking a word. It's speaking something about God. It's actually telling us information about God. That's the contention of Christianity, always has been. And that was the impulse that led many early Christians in the Christian era, in the church uh, age, to become scientists. So really, I have two objectives here today. The first objective I have is to provide you some evidence here today that the designs in nature are real designs. And I want to show this by showing you that unguided chemical evolution and specifically Darwin's mutation selection mechanism don't have the time or the resources to be a substitute designer at his claim. Okay, and so you might say, well, what does that have to do with church today? But really, theology and biology are intimately linked if there's a God behind everything. So I think it's, it's right for us in church to do a little science here this morning, and we will, and I hope you'll be fascinated with it, as I am. The second objective I have is that if our design intuition has reasons and is therefore accurate, then a designer is probable. And if a designer is probable, then that calls us back to wonder. It basically reintroduces the marvelous in the creation, whereas it was banished in some sense by our scientific education, and we, were, we expunged wonder from our world. But it pulls it back again, and that's my goal today, that we would be reintroduced to wonder, both for the believer, uh, but also for the seeker, for the person who maybe in this room is investigating Christianity and wondering if there is evidence for design. So let's begin with chemical evolution, shall we? How do you think that life first, you know, sprang into being on planet Earth? Darwin said that it happened without design, without forethought, without intention, without a creator. And here's how he imagined it happening. He imagined it happening in a warm little pond where the right chemicals combined to make the first cell. 
Darwin believed that a cell was fundamentally simple. In fact, everybody did in the 1860s. It's the 1860s, after all. We didn't really look inside the cell. They called it protoplasm back then. So imagining how one might self-assemble, a cell could self-assemble from just shuffling organic compounds seemed believable. Then we learned what a cell is. And the, the information age of biology has uh, come upon us here in the last century. And now we found out that every cell is a wonder of nanotechnology. Inside every cell are literally hundreds of micro machines, filtration systems, libraries, proofreading systems, energy centers. It's just an unbelievable thing. I'll give you one example. Uh, you maybe have seen this, but you can go online and Google the word Kinesin. Kinesin is the delivery guy, the FedEx delivery guy in the cell. The Kinesin is literally a tractor. It's not like a tractor, it is a tractor. So what Kinesin does, a little enzyme that looks like a stick with two feet on it. And the way it's rendered in, um, uh, you know, in uh, different videos that you can watch, is basically a little guy who walks along self-assembled uh, roads in the cell and he drags a sack of newly manufactured proteins that are about 500 times his size. And he drags these things along and pulls these proteins to any place in the cell that it's needed. At any moment in time, you have 100,000 of these little guys that are doing their work, delivering stuff to all different places in the cell in every one of your 500 trillion cells in your body. So no matter how lazy you feel right now, friends, you are never inherently doing nothing. Right now, there's a lot of activity that's going on. Are you controlling that right now? These little guys are just going along little pathways in your body right now, delivering needed chemicals where they need to go in every single one of your 500 trillion cells. Well, despite these discoveries, scientists have still hung on to the idea that the first of these cells, you know, to kind of get the idea of life going, the first of these cells uh, had uh, just self-assembled. They just came together from non-living chemicals. But how are to, we, uh, to imagine chemicals doing this without any intelligence, without any forethought? Chemicals are, are literally dumb. Chemicals are dumb. They don't want to be in living states. They don't have a desire to be in a living state. So how can we imagine this happen? Well, you have to, first of all, figure out what a cell is. A cell is made of at least 300 protein molecules, and, and the building blocks of proteins are amino acids. And they're arranged in very specific orders for proteins to fold correctly. So what you have to imagine is that in just the right environment, just the right amino acids would come together by chance to begin to create the building blocks of cells. But could they? Could this happen? To find out, you have to understand the odds. And we understand about odds, don't we? So to, to give a little illustration of odds, we're going to use this. Okay? So a dice. So the odds of you guessing randomly what this dice will turn up when I roll it here on my podium are approximately one in six, okay? So I'm going to roll this dice on the count of three, and you're going to guess what it is, okay? You're going to guess the number. You're going to shout it out on three. Ready? One, two, three. How many of you said three? Raise your hand, okay? So chance are about one in six. There's about 60 people in this room, and about 10 of you, and that's about right, got it right. Now, what if I had uh, two dice? What are your chances of getting both of them correct and in the right order? What are your chances? One in 36. That's right. So now you're going to do the same thing on the count of three. You're going to shout out two numbers that you're going to guess between one and six, nothing above six. Okay. All right, here it goes. Ready? One, 
two, three. Three, two. How many of you got that? Not a single one, okay? So the chance are one in 36. We should have got at least one hit in a room this size. But, uh, you know, it's random. That's why we call it random. Now, um, let's imagine that we had 10 dice. The chances go from 1 in 6 to 1 in 36 to what? All right. Did, did you guess? What's your 10? You got 10? Was it 3, 4, 6, 5, 6, 5, 2, 3, 1, 6? Did anyone get that? And, yes! Probably you didn't. In fact, if we had the whole population of California guess twice, we probably wouldn't get a correct answer for that. Not the right numbers and not in the right order. The chances of getting all 10 of these dice, uh, guessing it correctly, in the right order and the right numbers is approximately 1 in 60,466,176. That's the chance. Now we understand a little something about odds, okay? Now let's go to the cell. In the cell, in proteins, you have a potential of 20 different amino acids that can make up any particular uh, protein. And you need about 150 amino acids to make up the simplest protein molecule, 150 of them, arranged in just the right order. So take the dice, turn them from six-sided dice to 20-sided dice. You ever seen one of those? If you're into Dungeons and Dragons, you've seen a 20-sided dice, okay? So imagine a 20-sided dice. Now imagine I'm carrying 150 20-sided dice. And now I throw them, 150 20-sided dice. Now what are the chances that you would guess all 150 correctly and in the right order? What are the chances? Well, the chances are 1 in 10 to the 164th power, which is 1 chance in 10 with 164 zeros behind it which is to say one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's the chance of just getting it right randomly, just by, you know, just throwing it out there and guessing. Now, despite these long odds, some people think that you could still do it by just reshuffling the amino acids over and over and over again if you had enough time. I mean, the universe is really pretty old after all. Well, let's just test that, shall we? Imagine all the oceans of the Earth are filled with the building blocks of proteins, filled with amino acids, all 20 of them, the 20 that you need to create proteins that will fold into the building blocks of cells. And imagine they're combining and they're recombining constantly. In other words, we're throwing the dice all the time. We're just throwing the dice over and over and over again. Six trillion billion new rolls of the amino acid dice every minute. And we're, all, we're just trying to get one protein to fold correctly. Okay. So imagine we're just rolling the dice, and we're doing it over and over again with all the biological material of the world in the oceans of the world. Okay? Now, how long will it take if we're just shuffling that much stuff? We're throwing the dice that many times. Well, if you did that for the entire history of the Earth, that's 4.6 billion years, how many tries would you have gotten to? You would have gotten to 10 to the 58th rolls of the dice. That's a lot of tries. That's a staggering number of combinations of amino acids to try to create one protein. It's a staggering number of tries, but you would be nowhere near the number that you would need to guarantee just one correct hit. So how much time would you need to get one chance in 10 to the 164th power? Let me give you a visual. Imagine an amoeba 
traveling at one foot an hour. And this amoeba is placed on one end of the known universe. And it begins to travel across the 60 billion light years across the known universe. Okay? So just imagine this amoeba and imagine how fast he is, how long it would take for this amoeba traveling at one foot an hour to get to the other side of the universe and back again. If he goes all the way there and back again, would that be enough time? No, that wouldn't be enough time to get the number of hits. Imagine that this amoeba traveling at one foot an hour going from the one side of the known universe to the other and back again two times. Would that be enough time? No, that wouldn't be enough time either. Now let's imagine this amoeba was like a truck and we could put one molecule, or no, one atom on top of it, like one little hydrogen atom on top of that amoeba. Now he goes again on another trip across the size of the known universe. And he goes back and forth. That, is that enough time? No. Imagine he does that for every atom in the known universe. And is that enough time for us to get one try in 10 to the 164th? Is that enough time? No, that's not enough time. Our little hardworking amoeba needs to go there and back again for every atom in the known universe and do it 52 million times, and then we'd have enough time to get that many rolls of the dice so that we can get one protein to fold correctly. Oh, by the way, now all we have is a protein. So after that trillion, trillion, trillions of years, and the universe, as far as we know, is only 13.6 billion years old. So after trillions and trillions and trillions of years for this amoeba, this hardworking amoeba, now all we've got is a protein. We need 300 of them. So go again, amoeba. Are you marveling yet? Well, let's not. If not, let's turn to dolphins and whales, shall we? Because there's something specifically fascinating about these. The Bible says, Psalm chapter 104, verse 24, which, by the way, is a creation psalm and another beautiful account of creation, not just from Genesis 1, it's in other parts of the Bible. And here the author states, How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So it attributes the biosphere to God and his design. How countless are your works. Here is the sea, the psalmist says, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan which you formed to play there. Now, nobody knows for sure what creature the Bible means when it mentions Leviathan, which it does on several occasions. But I suspect that modern whales are probably what the author has in mind, the monsters of the deep. But whales, as you know, are mammals. They're just like us in that they have hair, they have mammary glands, they breathe air, they give birth to live young. But they are made, they are designed to live in water. So if they came from the land, as terrestrial mammals do, and, and developed into these seafaring creatures, as scientists believe, can a mindless process of mutation selection accomplish that amazing transition from land-dwelling mammal into now sea-dwelling mammal? Think about the challenges that would be involved in developing a whale out of some terrestrial four-legged mammal. Well, you can actually list them, and uh, Dr. Richard Sternberg, who's kind of specialized in whale evolution, lists the following changes that were required to turn a land-dwelling mammal into uh, a whale. The telescoping of the skull, so a longer, skinnier skull. Transition of nasals. Think about this. Your nasals are right here in the middle of your skull. Imagine them being transitioned to the top of your head. Imagine breathing out of the top of your head. That would be wild, wouldn't it? Now, that transition 
has to take place for there to become, uh, to, to have whales out of, a, out of a terrestrial mammal. The blowhole has to be developed. And by the way, the blowhole has a unique suite of muscles found nowhere else in um, the world. Forelimbs have to be transformed into flippers. There's extra bones. Whales have some bones that you don't have. Uh, special lungs. You have to have lungs that are capable of diving a mile deep and, without getting the bends. So imagine you being able to dive down in 45 minutes down a mile under the ocean and come back up and not die. Uh, you need the, the development of tail flukes, which is, by the way, all soft material. That's all cartilage. None of that's in the bones. Uh, you have to develop a dorsal fin, same thing. You have to develop a ball vertebrae in your spine so that you can have the unique undulating motion that's required for swimming. You have to uh, develop a blubber, a thick layer of blubber for thermal protection or else you're going to die in 33 degree ocean temperatures. You have to develop the ability to drink seawater. How long do you last with seawater? Seawater will kill you. So every other mammal is killed by seawater. Uh, ocean going whales drink it. Uh, in copious amounts. Uh, you have to be able to develop a, a way of birthing your, your, your young breach. So as you know, a, a breach birth with a human is really bad news, right? That's really bad. But every whale and dolphin is born breach. Why is that? Because they're born underwater. And so during the birthing process, they have to stay in the birth canal, continuing to get nutrients from the mother until they can be fully out into the water and then immediately pushed up to the surface. If they were born as we are all born, head first, the whales would suffocate. They would literally drown during the birthing process. So you have to invert the birthing process from a normal mammal to a swelling mammal. It's an amazing development. Then you have to get the hydrodynamic properties of the skin that has to be okay being soaked in water 24-7 and a kind of skin that can shed to keep the barnacles off you. You have to have the elimination of your hind limbs. Your legs have to go away. They just go away. Uh, you have to have mandible, uh, a mandibular fat pad, which is a little sponge in the inner ear, which is required for underwater hearing. You have to develop the modification of teeth into baleen. You've probably seen that, right? These long uh, calcium uh, uh, protrusions in the mouth of, of plankton-eating uh, 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 whales. And so you basically have to eliminate teeth and turn them into baleen. Oh, one other amazing adaptation, male reproductive organs. In all males, of course, the male reproductive organs live outside the body to protect against disease and also to keep the male gonads, the male testes, at temperature just below body temperature because that's the only temperature at which they can produce sperm. But if you've looked at a whale, you've asked yourself, wait a minute, uh, I've seen whales before. They're awesome swimming creatures. They're like torpedoes in the water. I don't believe any reproductive organs are on the outside. No, they're not. They're recessed into the body cavity. Well, how then can they produce sperm? Because they're mammals and they need to produce sperm at just below body temperature in order to produce sperm. Well, what an amazing thing has happened inside a whale is the development of a radiator system. It's not like a radiator. It is a radiator system. What has happened is there's a suite of blood vessels that go to the dorsal fin and to the fluke before they go back to the, to the heart to be pumped back through the, to, through, through the body. They go to the testes to cool them down so that they remain just below body temperature. Okay, so now think of the engineering problem here, right? Before you have the radiator system and you had 
the, the reproductive organs inside the whale, the whale's dead. He can't produce sperm. So a, a non, you know, a whale that can't produce is not going to evolve. Dead animals don't evolve. But if you have the reproductive system side, the, the whale, of course, it's going to be completely uh, impractical for the whale to be a water-dwelling animal. It's just, it is an amazing engineering problem solved in the most ingenious way. Yeah, a radiator. Let's just have a radiator on the testes. There you go. Now, uh, this amazing engineering problem is just one of a million. There's 15,000 changes in total to change a terrestrial mammal into a water-dwelling creature. Oh, and there's one that only dolphins have. I brought a video with me to show. Melon acoustic system. Echolocation is unique among the whales. And listen how it's developed. Think about echolocation from a problem-solving standpoint. What do you need? I've got to make the sound, number one. Number two, I've got to transmit it. I've got to get it out into the environment. All right, now I've got echoes coming back. Those have to be received, but that's not enough. I've got to process them. I've got to take that incoming information and turn it into something that I can actually use and understand. Making the sound, transmitting it, receiving it, and processing it are necessary elements of echolocation. And if you take away any one of them, let's say we take away transmission, it doesn't matter if you have the other three you lose the system as a whole. The challenge of building a complete system grows when the four phases of echolocation are broken down into their specific components. For to create the entire mechanism, each of the hundreds of individual parts required must be integrated and fully functional simultaneously. So you've got all these different components for the sonar, and how does the dolphin know how to use this equipment? That's where instinct comes in. They not only got the hardware, but they got the owner's manual along with it. Instinct is a set of instructions on how to use the equipment, and it has to know that from the second it's born. All of this stuff happens automatically and it's, it's perfectly set up. It, it's, it's like you look at it and you say, of course, that's the way it's supposed to work. So it's pretty hard to believe that this all happened by chance and natural selection, especially when each individual part is meaningless without the whole. As a creative agent, natural selection is severely limited. By definition, the process uses random genetic mutations to slowly build or modify organisms through trial and error and small gradual steps. Each incremental change is made blindly, without any sense of an ultimate purpose or objective. What it cannot do is visualize a distant functional endpoint and say, well, I'll need this part and I'll need this part and I'll need this part. Any evolutionary process you consider, any materialistic process you can consider, has no foresight. It can't see five years, five seconds, five milliseconds into the future. For that, you need a mind. Only minds, only intellect, only a conscious, purposeful intelligence 
has the ability to say, that's my target, how can I hit it? What would I need to bring together to do that? That's what we do, that's what designers do, that's what minds and intellects do. Undirected physical processes can't do that. This is rational, it's reasonable. It's taking the evidence and saying, what's the best explanation for what I see? AC3, you don't have to be a scientist to know that all this engineering coming about by a blind process that has no foresight, as the uh, scientist says, uh, is enormously improbable. But we're told there's a way around this. It's like this is like a, a Mount Improbable. And this is the, uh, the illustration given by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. It's Mount Improbable to think that you could have an echolocation system that could develop randomly and blindly by chance. But let's suppose that the mountain has a backside where we can climb up to the top functional peak with one slow little incremental step at a time. And all that seemed maybe like an okay story to believe that you could develop an echolocation system or like a radiator testy system, develop it slowly over time, incrementally, like Legos, just build one block at a time. That made more sense, though, friends, until we understood how DNA works. Each new feature requires a new protein, right? We already talked about how complex it is to develop one protein by chance. Now imagine you need a new protein and you need two coordinated mutations to create a different or new kind of protein. I was at Discovery Institute uh, two summers ago, and their uh, biochemist, Doug Axe, who did his PhD work at Cambridge, said, there's no reason to think that this is plausible. Why? Well, because of the same odds issue. Now, we're, friends, we're up against a math problem. Now we're up against a massive and enormous math problem. Go back to Wales. You need two coordinated mutations for every new adaptation. We said you need 15,000 new adaptations to turn a terrestrial mammal into a seagoing uh, whale. And so because of the size of the genome, to get two coordinated mutations, Doug Axe estimates, you need 260 million years of just random mutations to try to shuffle those amino acids around per change. 216 million years per change. And guess what? Your window is less than 5 million years, which is a blink of evolutionary time. So when we look at living sister, systems, friends, we realize that brute matter and natural law leading a blind, mistake-driven process can't get it done. Mathematically, it's ruled out. So I want us to watch one more video just so that we kind of climb inside the wonder of whales. Behold, Leviathan. Humpback whale is one of the largest animals on Earth. Adult females measure up to 50 feet and weigh 40 to 50 tons. They can live for more than a century. In warm tropical waters, a female gives birth to a single calf every two to three years. The whales breathe through twin blowholes that expel a double stream of spray visible for miles. 
Then they quickly inhale enough air to fill a pair of lungs, each the size of a small car. When it dives, a humpback can hold its breath for up to 45 minutes. Their underside is lined with grooves that run from navel to chin. This accordion design allows the humpback to expand its throat as it intakes huge quantities of water whenever it feeds. The whales have no teeth. Instead, they are filter feeders, straining 50 pounds of krill or small fish with every mouthful. Humpbacks have massive flippers, the largest of any animal. The whales raise them to work as solar collectors, a behavior that helps regulate their core body temperature. Their powerful tails are legendary. The flukes measure up to 15 feet across and can propel the whales to depths exceeding 700 feet. You can say majestic, you can say breathtaking, any number of adjectives, but really in the end the language fails. You have to be there standing on the boat looking at them. They're as long as a city bus. You know, they've been down underwater feeding, up they come. How, how do you describe that? This sense of sheer wonder is universal, and our fascination with the largest creatures in the Earth's history has sparked a rigorous search for the explanation of their origin. It is a search that is both an icon of Darwinian evolution and a challenge to its validity. It's a challenge to the validity that a mindless, aimless process could create something as wonderful as that. Now, I want to turn from the idea of adaptive design. In other words, all the designs you see in the whale are adapted to a specific purpose. But now let's look at something much, much smaller than a whale, a butterfly. And you can imagine that there are some things in a butterfly that are non-adaptive, the sheer beauty of it, and also something about how it's formed from a caterpillar. Maybe you thought that a caterpillar crawls into a chrysalis and grows a wing or two and, uh, and then just kind of crawls out. Not that impressive. Well, it's not exactly that simple. Let's watch this. A butterfly chrysalis connects two fundamentally different ways of living. It is both a bridge and a workshop where one type of organism is transformed into another. The magnitude of this transformation has been compared to a Model T Ford. 
that suddenly encases itself within a garage. Inside, most of the car breaks down into fragments of metal, rubber, and glass. These pieces then reorganize themselves into components more complex than any that previously existed in the Model T. After several days, the garage door bursts open and a radically different mode of transportation lifts off into the sky. Now, an analogy like that is pure whimsy. But even if it were somehow possible, I don't think turning a car into a helicopter would be nearly as impressive as the actual transformation that takes place inside a chrysalis. From the moment the chrysalis is formed, caterpillar tissues are destroyed and then recycled to help build wings, compound eyes, reproductive organs, and navigational systems of stunning beauty and efficiency. Yet despite the importance of cell death in the chrysalis, the origin of the process defies the basic logic of natural selection. One of the fundamental requirements of natural selection is reproduction. You've got to be able to make copies of yourself, in particular of your genes. You've got to be able to pass them on. But a chrysalis, unless it represents a bridge to something yet to come, is really a casket. If you're a caterpillar, you're entering your own grave. Turning most of your body into a molecular soup would be suicide. A caterpillar, unless it makes it through to the adult, is no good because it can't reproduce. You're not going to have offspring, and so you're a dead-end street evolutionarily. So it wouldn't be any benefit at all to kill yourself unless you've got a hidden plan up your sleeve. You know, like, okay, I know I can go ahead and commit suicide because there's a new me waiting to happen. <laughs> the caterpillar is not going to enter the chrysalis without simultaneously knowing, I've got a plan for getting out of this. I'm heading towards the adult butterfly. I'm gonna reconstitute these tissues in the adult form, emerge, and go on my way. But that's not how natural selection operates. It can't look into the future and somehow anticipate what an evolving organism is going to need in a week or a month or a thousand years from now. So if the first caterpillars were evolving into existence, without foresight, it's highly unlikely natural selection would retain a destructive process like cell death. Without any foresight, it's highly unlikely that a creature's gonna die so that it could have a chance that it'll live in some better way. You can just imagine the difficulties here, friends. And if you can begin to imagine the difficulties for an unguided process, then we can begin to reintroduce our design intuition. And that's what I want to leave you with. Friends, how did we ever let science, this, this beautiful discipline of, of learning how the natural world works, how did we ever allow it to steal our wonder at creation? And so today, what we're finding out is that discoveries in the cell, and something we didn't even get into today, which is the fine-tuning of the universe, are making the idea of a designer 
more probable, not less. Friends, I look around and I see all the designs that you and I make. I just drive down the street and I think, God, why? Because I look at a car and I think, there's a beautiful design. You say, well, that's not a design from God. You can't infer God from a car driving down the street. Well, where did the car come from? It came from your mind. And so we're to imagine that your mind came from mindlessness, but the car came from a mind. No, friends, when we look at design systems, it is right for us to infer design. And therefore... Let us recover the marvel of that. The awesome implication of a creator and a designer in that. Let's recover the worship in that because every molecule, as it turns out, every molecule in the world is screaming out God's name. Dear believer, you have reason to worship and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is built on a very firm intuition that has basis in fact. And dear seeker, the idea of God is entirely probable in this highly designed world. And if so, you just might be accountable to that God. And that's our subject for next week. I hope you return to that. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your fingerprints, which are written over everything that you have made. It's true. We see destruction and death. We see nature raging in some ways. But if cars crash together, that doesn't mean that they weren't still designed. So, Father, we look into your amazing world and realize it's your world, and it's filled with ingenuity and creativity. And so, us made in your image, Father, we, we create to your glory. And so, Lord, let us live our lives under the, the beauty and wonder of being creatures made in the image of our Creator. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, AC3, we are going to...